you're tuned into Going Long with Bruce Murray. Hello, everyone. I'm Bruce Murray, host of The Blitz on Sirius XM NFL Radio, and welcome to the first episode of my podcast, Going Long, a podcast that each week will visit with celebrities both in and out of the world of sports about what else their passion for sports. For the athletes themselves, it will be about their accomplishments, their failures, but more often than not about their lives away from the games themselves. For the celebrities, obviously, also about their successes and their failures, but their love of sports, what keeps them interested when they're not doing their chosen profession. Our first installment is with Brett Favre. Don't need to introduce him much. Everybody knows all about Brett Favre, the Hall of Famer. If you're looking for his history, it's easy to find online. You can go up and find any website that will tell you he came into the league in 1991. It will tell you that he exited the league in 2010. We know he won a Super Bowl. We know he's one of the greatest players of all time. But if nothing else, he was a personality that will never be forgotten in football's history. The podcast that I do with Brett Favre is more about entering into the world of football, not football itself. If you want to find out about the nose trimmers or something about Mary, that's easy to do. If you want to hear the stories about the Super Bowl against New England or Denver, that's easy to find. What you won't find in too many places is growing up in a small town in Mississippi where he met his wife, which happened to have been in grade school. Many people don't know that, how young he was when he became a father. The issues of coming into money at a very young age, having grown up very poor. Maybe the jealousy among family members as he rose to the heights that he did while others couldn't, despite what their aspirations were. Many people don't know the story behind what his family went through with Hurricane Katrina, when he couldn't be with them to live through that devastating moment in time. Even being traded to Green Bay. As a kid that spent most of his life in the South and having no knowledge of what it would be like to be outside of those environments, just going to big time college football near his home and then having to leave to go to Atlanta close enough where his family could see him or he could see his family, but then ultimately leaving for Green Bay where he had really very little contact with his family on a personal level. That's what this conversation is all about. And I really do hope you will enjoy it because that's what it's going to be about week in and week out. Here now my conversation with the Hall of Famer. Brett Favre. My guest today is somebody that I work with on a regular basis on NFL radio, but I'm happy to have him as part of the podcast. And there's a little explanation about, you know, my, my irritation today. We'll get to that in a second with the hall of famer, Brett Favre. Brett, it's, it's good to see you actually. It's normally that we do this over the phone, but great to see you. How are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing good, Bruce. Uh, very good. Are you interested in my irritation? I, I'm, I'm interested in anything you have to say, Bruce. Uh, you know, not that it matters to the folks listening, but I was preparing to go for a long bike ride. Uh, and Brett Favre texted me earlier today and says, listen, I may be a little late because I have to go for a bike ride with my wife. And I said, absolutely no problem, but it's going to prevent me now from maybe getting out on my rounds as well. And I think it's all part of your manipulation because you're very competitive. You don't want anybody to get more miles or anything else. And I think that's w- what, what was behind all of this. Am I correct? Yes, you are correct. <laughs> I can't lie. <laughs> I, I think it's very special that you ride with your wife, by the way. Well, she's the one who actually got me into riding, got my first bike. And I think I probably told you a story. It's set in a in the garage for probably five years and never had cobwebs. And I, I thought to myself, what am I going to ever do with that? And um, I, I kind of 
got my feet wet a little bit, got my butt raw and said, the hell with this, I'm done. This ain't worth it. Uh, you kind of, and, and you know this, Bruce, you kind of go through a, uh, several phases uh, before you, you, you either quit for good or you stick it out. You know, right. you get dropped a couple times or you, you get raw at first. The seat, you know, you, got, you, you think there's a more comfortable seat. Now, really, there is sort of, but it's never comfortable. Uh, but, but as far as uh, sticking it out, I think Deanna, I have to give her the credit because uh, she'd ride with the groups, the fast groups. Uh, and I, I would never do that because, that, I mean, I, I'd never see them. <laughs> you know, so, um, but, but yeah, she, she did races and triathlons and Ironman and all that stuff. And, uh, which, which I didn't do, but it really kind of got my feet wet and, and I love it now. And it's really one of the passions that you and I share. I think it's really the only reason that we're friends. I mean, let's face it, we have nothing else to discuss, but, um, on the seat, you don't get the seat better. You get your butt better. That's true. What and, and I do want to tell people, there are many people that don't really understand what it means to be a cyclist. And, you know, we talk about this all the time. You know, they think it's jumping on a bike and going out for a little while. To put it in perspective, and you're not even at the top end of some of the guys that I know True. well, but you'll ride 6,000 miles in a year. True. Right? 6,000 yeah. miles in a year. I think people have to digest what that means to get on a bike every day for 30 or 40 miles when they think, Five miles sounds daunting. You're out there every day doing these long rides. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, for example, I didn't do it. I haven't done a long ride yet this week, but I've rode every day at least 20. And, uh, you know, there's sometimes you don't feel like it. And somebody calls you, you know, it's like, hey, let's go for a ride. And you're like, okay. Uh, or you have scheduled group rides where that's kind of your competition, uh, kind of, well, and, and let me back up. I like cycling because uh, it keeps me in shape, but it also keeps you competitive in your, in your later years. I mean, you can't go out and play football. You can't go out and play professional baseball, basketball, pick up basketball without killing yourself. Biking is probably barring an, a, a wreck, which, you know, if you're biking enough, you're going to wreck, as you know. Um, it's, it's, it's from a wear and tear standpoint, um, it's, it's pretty good on the body. And there's no standings when it comes to cycling, but you're as competitive as it gets. I, I don't think you can achieve the levels that you did playing football. If you weren't, when you go out with your buddies and they do drop you and you get beat, I mean, is that something that you get over quickly? Cause you know, for us, we're competitive, but then the ride's over and you're all happy. But are you competitive even when it comes to riding when it's done? Yes, um, I, I am, and, and there's there's some guys I'm just never going to catch, um, and I I know that there's a lot of science behind cycling, even though the average Joe would probably think, I mean, strategy? Are you kidding me? Um, yeah, I, one of the first like competitive group rides that I joined, uh, there was probably thirty or forty guys and girls and uh i would say probably five and it was about a 40 mile ride now the competitive part of it was not that long you know you kind of coast and go through, get out of the neighborhoods and all of a sudden you know all right we got a 12 mile loop or something like that and i, I went out as hard as i could the first mile 
and I may have been the last one to finish. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> you, I mean, you learn. <laughs> yes. You learn the hard way. That's a lonely, long ride by yourself. Yes, you learn the hard way when you don't know the science yeah. of it. And I do want to talk more cycling, but I want to bring it back to your wife for a second. Because, you know, I always say, when it comes to professional athletes, Brett, you know this, we know the guys with the lives they lead publicly when they become athletes, maybe to some extent in college, more so now with social media and the attention that they get. But, you know, I don't know Brett Favre, you know, prior to football. I don't know Brett Favre at Southern Mississippi. I know Brett Favre being drafted into the National Football League. You talk about Deanna getting you into to cycling. You met her very young. I mean, you didn't follow the traditional path that some guys do. How old were you when you met your wife? And, and I'd love to know what challenges came with that. Well, we, we actually, I say, I don't even know if I would call it meeting. We, we grew up together. So she was a year ahead of me in grade school. Our, our grade school, first through 12th, was all together. So you didn't go here for elementary. You go over here for middle school. Uh, we, we were all at the same school. So How many, how many small, kids were in the school? It's a small school. Yeah, so my graduating class was 100. And Deanna's was probably 105. She graduated in 86. I graduated in 87. My brother graduated in 84. And he probably had a hundred. Uh, so, you know, you, you knew everybody. And uh, Deanna and I knew each other. Uh, of course, when we're in elementary, you, you know, you, a girl's no different than a boy to you. And uh, we both are Catholic. And so we, uh, we had, back then it was called catechism. Uh, which was summer Bible study, uh, if you will. And we did that together. And uh, I can remember as far back, you know, playing kickball out on the playground, uh, whatever. And it was, I was, I, she says that I was in the ninth grade. I say I was in eighth grade when we actually started going out, if you want to call it that. And I talked about it in, in my Hall of Fame induction that, my dad it's, uh, took me and my older brother to a Saints game. And I don't know if you remember this uh, in my Hall of Fame speech, but I'd never been to an NFL game before or since that I didn't play in, except for that game. And Kenny Stable was a quarterback, and it was December 17th, I believe. Uh, all I know is my brother was turning 16 that day, and that's why we went to the game. I didn't know that. Well, they had a surprise party at our house. So when we got back, uh, and the Saints, by the way, had they won, they had never been to the playoffs. Now, had they won against the Rams that day, they would have gone to the playoffs for the first time ever. Now, I want you to finish this story, but you know who else was at that game? You. I was in Tulane. Were you really? I was at Tulane. That was 1982, maybe? 83? 83 or 4, I think. Okay. And I remember how that game ended with this great defense having to stop the Rams being pinned deep in their territory. I went down with a couple of guys because it was, the, like you said, all this excitement in New Orleans. And I remember how it ended. So we were there together. Wow. Karma. Yeah, how about that all these years later? But anyway, I, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, so no. I mean, that, that's kind of the just the story that we had known each other uh, saw each other at school every day. It wasn't like you didn't see 
everybody in school. Um, so the funny thing is when I walked into the house, when we pulled up, we lived, we, we had, we lived on a half a mile gravel road that had woods on each side all the way in. And there was not a neighbor within miles. I don't, I don't even know the number, but a long ways. And no one was ever at our house. Um, when we pull up in the driveway, it's dark. Uh, there's cars everywhere, cars and trucks. And I'm like, what, what is going on? I'm 14, I think. And uh, well, I'm the first one to walk in the house and they all go, surprise. And the only person I saw, I was petrified. You know, you 14 year old kid, all these, your peers, uh, is Deanna. And she, she's like sitting up and it wasn't like, oh my God, who is this beautiful woman? I, I knew who she was. But for whatever reason, I made eye contact with her and I ran to my bedroom, just bolted. But it, um, after the, the, uh, the initial onslaught, I, we ended up going outside and playing basketball, just a bunch of kids. And Deanna ended up playing basketball with us. She was a good basketball player and softball player. And one thing led to another. And uh, we kept talking and started dating. But do you always remember, like in eighth grade, I remember what it's like to, you know, to have a crush on a girl and you always want to impress them. You always want to do oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, were you always trying to impress her when she was, she was an older woman? Let's be fair. I, I, was, I certainly was always trying to impress her. There's no question about that. I, and as I look back, I don't think I did a very good job. And I think we all as adults can look back at those times and go, oh, what was I thinking? Were you riding around on your handlebars? Because that was a big thing when you were a kid, putting your girlfriend on your handlebars and riding them through town. Um, we didn't have a town. <laughs> and, and we didn't bike on gravel roads. Uh, we didn't have gravel tires and, all, you know. So, so uh, we played basketball. She, she, uh, she was a good softball player, so she was able to actually I, – I was, I was probably better in, in high school and junior high at baseball than I was football. And – so she would catch for me. I was a pitcher and played shortstop. And she was able to catch and throw it back uh, with, with no problems. And I thought that was really cool. <laughs> Were you a good kid? Yeah, I think so. I was very, uh, I was shy. Uh, I, if you'd have told me that I was gonna get up and say a speech in front of the world in accepting a Hall of Fame induction I would have said you're absolutely crazy I was petrified to get up in front of class so I was real shy uh, I never missed a day of school in 12 years wow uh, not because I you know was a star student but first of all my mom and dad taught at the school it's hard to skip when they're driving you to school <laughs> yes and um, I was good in my schoolwork. I wasn't great but I did enough to get by like when I, I was working for a scholarship. I needed a 15 on my ACT. That was my goal, make a 15, not a 30. You, you know, so I kind of, I, I did enough to get by. Got in trouble at school a little bit, uh, but I never drank, didn't smoke, never did anything like that. Uh, uh, so I think I was pretty good. You know, you know, I, I want to talk, go back to that in a second, but you talk about being shy at that age and, you know, would anybody expect you to get in front of a large audience and, you know, would you describe yourself as shy today? I know you know how to manage it, but I know you don't love being around crowds. You know, I, I will say that, you know, you came to the Super Bowl this past year because you were honored as one of the 100 greatest players, which 
By the way, we've talked about on the air, I think it's extraordinary how humble yeah, you are. I agree. I mean, we're talking about the history of the game, and you're one yeah. of the hundred. But just going to dinner with you and the notoriety that you still have, the inability to walk down a block without being accosted by whoever is basically on the block and the challenges that come with that, do you, do you still find all of that uncomfortable? Uh, yeah, I, I do. Uh, you know, the, it's, I guess the best way to explain it is there's, it's kind of like biking. You know, you go through phases. And there was a time I was like, like probably any kid, man, it'd be cool to sign an autograph. Have someone ask for your autograph. Or run out of the tunnel and they call your name out at Lambeau Field. Or, or back in those days, I loved the Cowboys and the Saints. How cool would that be to be Roger Stallback or Archie Manning? Um, of course, you don't think about, you know, over, after 20, 30 years, uh, trying to go out and have dinner and, and being uh, interrupted uh, over and over again. So, you can, I mean, I'm, I'm very thankful that I've gotten to do what I – always wanted to do and I always try to keep it in, in perspective and and be I try to be nice I, I always try to be nice um, I, I'm never really I, I, in fact I, I'd like to think I never get for people who know me well I, if you said okay what would they say you know in a brief description of describe breath I would think that they would say pretty easy going doesn't get too riled up either way, seems to be in a good mood almost all the time. I would, I would say that that's true. Um, and um, I, I think I like crowds and enjoy being in social atmospheres a lot more when I was drinking. Now, I haven't drank since 98. I thought I was, I thought I was the life of the party. I, I, I was funny, man. I thought I was – and then when I quit drinking, I thought – I'm not as much fun as I thought I was. <laughs> uh, so it's not so much that um, it's just, you know, like if, if you're in a big crowd, uh, we all like a peace of mind and, and just, just uh, you know, okay, I need to decompress here and, and I'm going to go over to the punch bowl and get some. I can't do that. Yeah, because you're getting pulled in all directions. I don't, you know, so from that standpoint, it's a little uncomfortable. Um, the way we usually do things, I mean, like like you said, I had to be down in Miami uh, for a great reason. Uh, I mean, one that I couldn't pass up. I had to be in Canton for a great reason, one that I couldn't pass up. And so what you know what comes with that. Uh, you got to do functions. And you're going to shake hands and people are going to, you know, want to tell you stories. They want to hear stories. Uh, and, and it, you know, so it's, it goes with the territory. And I, as much as possible, I try to stay away from, from that unless I have to, have to. What about even just on the local level? Is there any conflict if your wife's invited to a party and she wants you to come and there's going to be people that you don't know exceptionally well, and you know, you're going to be the center of attention again and, there's marital conflict because you don't want to go and she does. Does that happen? Yeah, uh, not really. Not really. We, uh, we usually, if we do something, we're always doing it together. We go to a movie. Uh, like tonight, my 
my nephew is having a a small family graduation deal. They're having like a drive-through graduation like everyone else, but afterwards they're having like a little dinner. And um, it's an hour drive down to the coast where we, we grew up. And there'll probably be 30 people there, I'm assuming. People I know, some people I probably haven't seen in a long time. Um, it, you know, that, that's probably the worst of it, what we'll face tonight. And, it, you know, we don't do a lot of functions, but most people in Hattiesburg, it's about 150,000. I don't know everybody, but I generally most people are, are pretty good about it. You know, someone says, hey, Brett, I hadn't seen you in a long time. Good to see you. And it, that's about as, as tough as it gets. Yeah, you, you can't avoid it because you're recognizable, but I'll share a story with you uh, because I don't go through it because people recognize me, but I will go through it oftentimes when my wife introduces me uh, and tells people what I do. You know, everybody then wants to go, oh, what do you think of the Chiefs? What do you think? Yeah. You know, it, that, that's what it becomes. So, and this is a source of marital conflict that I will share with you. Uh, I, somehow I got roped into going to her high school reunion, her 20th high school reunion. And I said, I don't want to go to your reunion. She goes, you know, we're in Washington. You got to come. So I said, okay, I'll go, but I am not telling people that I, I work, you know, in sports. And so the entire night I walked around. If you ever want to avoid a conversation with somebody when they say, what do you do? Because everybody wants to make small talk. I said, I'm a marine, I'm a, a marine biologist. The conversation <laughs> comes to a halt almost immediately. Uh, hey, my husband, uh, what do you do? I'm a marine biologist. Okay, they're, they're immediately looking over your shoulder for somebody else to chat with. That's the best way out of a conversation. I need to try that, but I don't know if that's going to pass. Yeah, I don't think that's going to work with you. Um, but but so, you know, I, I kind of jumped ahead. I want to go back because, you know, you meet your your soon-to-be wife in, in grade school. And, you know, it sounds like it's all smooth. You kind of never look back. But I'm sure there were moments when in 10th grade and 11th grade, are we breaking up? Are we not breaking up? You, you go to college. You know, we all go through that as young guys, you know, not yeah. that we're going to meet our wives in eighth grade, you know. What were the challenges when you were young? Um, basically what you said, you know, you, you grow apart, you, you come back together, uh, you, you go off to college, one, one goes one way, one goes the other. Uh, that was, for the most part, that was the case for us, even though we went to college, Deanna went to junior college. Uh, from where I grew up, or we both grew up, to Southern Miss is an hour, hour drive. Halfway between that drive is the JUCO that she went to. So it wasn't like we were that far apart. Um, but I was playing football. She was playing basketball and softball uh, for, for the junior college. So we, you know, we were pretty busy. Uh, wasn't like I got to go see a lot of her games or vice versa. Um, we, uh, yeah, we dated other people. Uh, we'd get back together. But, um, and I, I hear a lot of stories like that. Some end up, you know, you go your separate ways uh, eventually. And then there are those situations like ours that you end up getting married. Um, so, um, yeah, you know, it, it, it offered a lot of challenges. Um, we, didn't, we didn't get married until 96. Uh, that was year for me, I think uh, we had a we had a, a daughter who uh, was born in '89. Yeah, you were a very young father. Oh yeah, I was also a very young grandfather. Uh, 
which if you're, if you're a very young father, there's a likelihood that you could be a young grandfather. Yeah, I could be wrong about this. I think it's a lot easier to be a very young grandfather, though, uh, than it is to be a young True. father. Because when you're a father, I mean, it's a lot of responsibility. When you're a grandfather, you go, here, uh, that was great. Nice visit. It's time, you know, I need a break now. At, at 19, and you're in the prime of, of your college career, um, and don't have money. I had $120 in my checking account. I didn't have a car. The first car I ever got was the one I bought with my first sign-in bonus, um, which was two years later. Um, it, you know, I was not opposed to begging family for $20. And that was, that was a stretch to get. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was definitely uh, difficult. And you went to college, and in fairness, you didn't go to college as the next coming. You were not the top recruit in the country and all that. I wasn't the top recruit at Southern Miss. <laughs> I was the last recruit. Were you the top recruit in your high school? Um, right. Yeah. So you had to work your way up, but then all of a sudden things started to change. I mean, so so tell me what your mindset was going to college. Was it just, I want to get an education and embark on my life? Or did you no. still think that you could be a football player? Well, I... Yeah. Okay. So after my senior year, you have that two or three month period before the, before the signing day, official signing, I think maybe somewhere in February or uh, somewhere like that. I, I, I'm not sure. So you get recruited, but I didn't know what to compare it to. Uh, as for, I mean, I got letters, you know, there was no texting, no social media, um, no YouTube highlights, none of that stuff. So if you heard from someone, it was either that they came and visited you or it was actually a, a home phone call uh, that you heard, you know, one with a cord. And uh, there wasn't a lot of those. Uh, there wasn't a lot of letters. There wasn't a lot of, I wasn't invited on any official visits, recruiting visits. Uh, so I, I knew the choices were slim and none up until I would say the only school that showed a lot of interest uh, other than the JUCO that Vienna went to um, was Southern Miss. And in saying that, the guy who was recruiting my area was the offensive line coach, Mark McHale. Uh, good guy, good coach. And he had South Mississippi, South Louisiana, South Alabama, and the panhandle of Florida is what he was recruiting. And he was – he and my dad hit it off, and they had a great relationship. And I think more than anything, he was trying to get me signed as a favor to dad, if that makes sense. Uh, not that he didn't think I could play, but he didn't think that I had a chance of coming in and being a quarterback. Because even though I played quarterback, I was a runner – punted, played DB and all that stuff. So I just want all I, you know, before I, I signed with Southern Miss, before I knew I was going to sign with anyone, because I had no offers up until the day before the official signing day. I just wanted a shot. Uh, and, and I didn't know where that was going to be, if it was going to be. I was going to walk on somewhere, go to JUCO. And I get the call from Mark McHale the day before, the night before the signing date, and said he said that a quarterback from Florida backed out on his commitment. 
and a new spot opened up. And do you want to come to Southern Miss and play football on full scholarship? I said, what else am I going to do? So, you know, I, I signed. My goal from that point was to be, to make it to, uh, uh, on the traveling squad. So you had to be in the top three. I was eighth out of eight on the depth chart. Uh, understandably so. Two of the guys in my recruiting class, you're probably going to remember one of the guys. Uh, one was uh, a guy named Michael Jackson. He was a quarterback from Kentwood, Louisiana. He was the uh, Gatorade runner-up player of the year in the, in the country. So I'm thinking, geez, I don't stand a chance. But we moved him to receiver, and when he played, he, he got drafted, and he played with Cleveland. He changed his name to Michael Dyson. Oh, I, yeah, I remember him. And he played about eight years. Yeah. Uh, and he, unfortunately, he was killed in a motorcycle wreck about two years ago. But So he was one of my competition initially. Um, they moved him receiver. A guy got hurt. Another guy got, got a chance to play, didn't play very well. Another guy played, didn't play very well. Um, and I started moving up the ladder, not because I, I, I'd like to say it was because I was like showcasing everything I could do. I never got reps. When I, when I talk to kids all the time, I'm like, you know, you ask for one thing and you don't get it. You think it's into the world. You know, there's a silver lining, uh, somewhere and you, it's just, you got to find it you get, but I never gave up. I worked my ass off. I don't think anyone outworked me. Night, I was very naive, but I think it served me well because I didn't realize the odds, uh, what I was up against. Um, because had I realized it, I would have thought, there's no way in hell I'm going to get a shot. Uh, and so I, and I was persistent. You know, if, if you didn't move up the depth chart and get that opportunity, I'd love to know what would Brett Favre have been doing at 23 years old? Because your mom and dad were teachers. Yeah. You were following that path. I'm not taking history class with Brett Favre, I can tell you that. Uh, <laughs> it would, no, you would have loved it. There would have been very little work. I'd have said, very easy read, read chapter 23 yeah. and tell me what you think of it. <laughs> That's an easy A. So what do you, I mean, you know, we all know about you living on a farm. What are you doing if, if you don't get a shot in the National Football League? I probably would have done what my dad did. I would have been a coach and a teacher. I, my, my specialty field that I was going into was uh, special education. My mother was a special education teacher for 30 some odd years. And I, I enjoyed going to her class and visiting with the, her kids. And she had, this was back when she had the most extreme uh, from one extreme to the next. You know, now they'll, they'll separate, you know, she would be teaching autistic, severely handicapped, uh, Down syndrome, all in one room. And, and I enjoyed being around her kids. So I thought that that's what my calling was. I did, what else did I know? You know, coaching, sports, and, and special education. And my dad was a driver's ed teacher. So I mean, I wasn't a mechanic. I didn't know how to weld. Uh, you know, I didn't know anything about business. We had very little money. Uh, what else am I going to do? 
As you started moving up the depth chart at Southern Miss, I mean, we all know about big time college athletics, Southern Miss. Listen, I went to Tulane. I saw yeah. the cars that those guys drove. That was Tulane. Were guys trying to throw money at you? I mean, they weren't trying to throw money at you when you were eighth on the depth chart. I know that you were begging family no. for money. But what about when you started moving up? No, uh, no, uh, not at Southern Miss. I can assure you. I, we, I played in front of two sellouts at Southern Miss. One was Jackson State, and half it was half was fifteen thousand was Jackson State. The other fifteen thousand was Southern Miss people, and the other was the only home game that we ever played against Mississippi State while I was at Southern Miss. That was a sellout. Other than that, we probably averaged anywhere from nine to twelve thousand for a game. So that, that tells you a lot about I mean, what type of boosters and and money is is being thrown around. Unfortunately. Just so you know, the nine to twelve thousand is about six to eight more than we got on Saturdays at Tulane for most of the years that I was there. Well, you know, I, I played when we played in the dome, as you know. That was you now they got their own stadium. Yeah. So you put thirty thousand in the dome. And you can pick out your family just like that. <laughs> yeah, it, it wasn't an ideal college environment. I, th- I think we can agree on that. Right. Um, so so when, it, when are you starting to think to yourself um, as you move up the depth chart that uh, I may be able to make money at this? I would say after my sophomore year. I started as a true freshman, not, not initially. We played Alabama the first game of my true freshman year. I was on the traveling squad. And the first two quarterbacks played. Now, they were defending national champs. On one, one defensive end side was Derek Thomas. On the other side was, if you remember, I think his, his nickname was Biscuit, Broderick Thomas. Yeah, sure. And those two were rushing. And I was like, okay, two quarterbacks have played. As much as I wanted to play, I was like, maybe we can wait till next week. <laughs> and I got my wish. So uh, in the second game, I come in against Tulane, but then I make my first start the following week against Texas A&M, who's number three in the country. And I actually played pretty good and uh, never looked back from there. But after my sophomore year, I had a really good sophomore year, statistically speaking. I would say of the four years, my sophomore year was probably the best. And uh, so I thought – Okay, I got a sh- I, you know I got a shot at this. I still got two more years. You didn't think leaving as a junior back then, um, and you know after my junior year, I definitely felt like um, even though statistically it was my best, we had a better year from a team uh, standpoint. But I knew after my sophomore year, if ever, if if I didn't get you know bad injured or just be a flop that I was going to get a shot. Did you have a life of a college student outside of football? I mean, you know, most yeah. guys go and they hang out with their buddies and they drink beer and yeah. And then, and then the guys who play on the teams, I don't care what size university you go to. They're the guys that you point at and go, Oh, there's the quarterback. There's the running back. And you don't really engage, you know, they had their group, you had your group. Were you like, what was your college life? Like, uh, we, uh, my brother was there, my older brother, uh, Deanna came after her first two years at JUCO. Uh, she came to Southern Miss. Um, so if we were dating, we hung out. Um, but yeah, we, we, I hung with usually 
some some of the players we would always go out on certain nights. Uh, my brother was a Sigma Chi, so all of his buddies we all yeah. You know, I, I never joined any fraternity, but you know I'd be over there hanging out with them, or we'd go out and and there wasn't a lot of stuff to do. We either went to New Orleans because uh, Hattiesburg at the time was dry, believe it or not. And uh, you had to drive probably 45 minutes. Uh, was probably the closest place you could go to party. Isn't that amazing? Hattiesburg was dry 30 years ago. Well, the, Hattiesburg today is made up of, with two counties, Lamar and Forest. One of them is still dry today. Really? That's unbelievable. How do you open a restaurant in a dry town and get you? Customers? You open it in the other county. Yeah. Keep that one closed. So you're, you're in school with your brother. And, and I've always wondered, you know, what, 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 is it hard on, on, on him because of all the attention that you're getting? I mean, you know, it's great to have siblings. You can have great bonds. But when one guy stands out, and that would be you, sometimes it can create conflict. What was it like between you and your siblings? Well, between me and Scott, we had a great relationship. But it was, it was very difficult on Scott um, because everyone said, hey, oh, you Brett Farr's brother. Yeah. And uh, he went through a phase, not, not with me, but he went through a phase in college where he was kind of mad at the world. Uh, he was a very good high school quarterback. He got a scholarship to Mississippi State. He was probably 170-pound, slow white kid, and they ran the wishbone at Mississippi State. So he played one year. He was on the team for one year. He's like, there ain't a chance in hell. I'm going to play. So he transferred to JUCO, played two years, played great, had a scholarship to go to Delta State, which was a smaller school here in, in Mississippi. Went up there for spring practice, came out as a starter, uh, had everything he wanted. You know, it wasn't a big school, but he had everything he wanted. He's a starter. And he said, you know what? I've had enough. And he, he enrolled at Southern Miss, joined a fraternity. And he kind of went through this phase the first year, year and a half at Southern Miss, uh, kind of mad at the world because uh, it, it aggravated him that people would say that to him. Yeah. But – Every, it, 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 it only got worse as I had more and more success. But we had a great relationship. And, and so, you know, we talk about, you know, you going to school so close to home and, you know, all of a sudden, you know, having this success and then you're drafted into the National Football League. And maybe that's not that far from home. So maybe that helps. But you'd really never been away from your family. I mean, you went to grade school with them, their teachers. You're close yeah. to home in college. You know, we all think it's all lights and, you know, you know, stardom, et cetera. But was it tough for you to leave home? Yes, it was. Uh, I was a, very much a home, homebody type person. Um, I, as I look back, I was so ill-equipped to live away from my family. I didn't know how to write a check. I never had – I didn't have enough money to even write checks. So um, – my mom, the first year, she played, paid bills. She she did the shopping, she, yeah, uh, for furniture. And, uh, I, I had no clue. I, I you know I had I, we did everything together as a family. Uh, there was four kids: me, there was my older brother, myself, my younger brother, my younger sister. We all played sports. We were all active, and they never missed a game or an activity. 
we were always at school together. We rode to school together. We rode home together. Um, as, as we talked about, it was a very small town. Um, there wasn't a lot where I grew up still to this day. It's not, a, it's not a town, but then if you wanted to go to a drive through you had to drive at least 20 minutes to the, the nearest town. If you wanted to go to a grocery store, you had to go probably, probably 20 minutes at the, at that time to go to, which is not a, I know people still do that today, but, uh, you know, we, from my door without traffic to the Superdome, we could get there in 50 minutes. So it wasn't like we were that, you know, 50 minutes away from the Superdome, you think, well, there's got to be something close to you. Yeah. Um, but there wasn't. Uh, so you can, it was really remote. So that being said, uh, you know, we, we did everything together. And so it was very hard to leave. So I find it interesting because we see today sometimes what happens when you just come into money and then you're traded to Green Bay. At some point, you're getting a contract and you're making a lot of money. What, what was it like, you know, having led a life of basically austerity, begging family members for money yeah. when you needed it, to all of a sudden have it? Um, you know, I, I've, I've seen two sides of it. I've seen those that get it and blow it right away. Yeah. And I... I would consider myself a very frugal person. Now, that being said, I've spent lots of money on stuff that I thought I needed that I didn't. Uh, farm equipment. I don't own a truck as we as we speak now. I don't own a tr car or a truck. You own a lot of tractors, though. I got five riding lawnmowers and two tractors. And I honestly can say I use every single one of them. One breaks down. I'm glad I got another one. Um, but I think I saved most of my money right away. Um, you know, I think there's just, like I said, there's two, two sides to it. You know, there's those that, that grew up without money, like myself, who wanted stuff. And when I came into money, I bought myself my first car. Now it was a, it was a lot of money. Then it was $38,000 Acura Legend was the first car I ever bought. And it sounds like the last car you ever bought. Uh, I probably had three more, <laughs> but you know, and as I got older and, and, and made more money, I, I, I mean, I still spent, I, I spent a lot on vacations or doing things like that. We, we spent a lot on our house. We spent way too much on our house. Uh, but yeah, it is what it is. Um, bought our property that we built our house on. But aside from that, uh, I felt like I got even more frugal, uh, as strange as that may sound. Um, my first, for, you know, signing bonus I got was uh, 450,000, which was a lot of money. It's a lot of money. And I'll never forget Bus, Bus Cook, my agent, and dear friend, he's like family. I was his only, only client. So when I signed the first dotted line, and I'm, I don't know if they, I can't remember if they handed the check how we did it, but it was 450,000 bus said, he looked at me and said, hey, now I just want you to know, you know that from here on out, half of that is the government's. Whatever you make. And he said, if you always remember that and either put that aside or have them automatically take it out so you don't even have to deal with it. 
you're going to be much better off in the long run because half of it is not yours. And I remember that to this day. And I mean, it's the truth. 48% goes to the government. And so if you make X number, you really make half of that. Yeah. But, but did you ever feel bad about, you know, your parents worked so hard, teacher salaries, whatever they were, 40,000, 50,000. And here you are a young kid now making all this money and living a life that maybe your family never had a chance to live. Did you feel some obligation about that? Uh, yes. Uh, and, and you're, you're wrong in their salaries. Mississippi is the lowest paid teacher salary still to this day. At the time, my dad ended up 35 years at, at Hancock North Central High School. My mom was there for 30. And at their peak, they were making 22000 a piece. Oh, my goodness. And my dad was coaching. So I think he got 1800 or 2200 at the most uh, to coach as a head coach. Uh, so, yeah, I, I did feel – I felt uh, I felt bad. But I, I, I spent a lot of money on them. Uh, you know, I don't even want to think about all the money I've spent. But – you know, that was a no brainer for but, me. But but did you spend the money out of guilt or did you spend it because you really wanted to and, and you just. No, felt- because I wanted to. I wanted him to. I bought my dad a truck from time to time. They, they never really asked for anything. You know, it wasn't like, hey, we're waiting on that house we've always wanted. We stayed in the same house. It helped my mom fix it up. And then, like, after Katrina wiped it out, I rebuilt. She wanted to stay right there, rebuilt it from ground up and was happy to do so. Uh, and, so and there's examples like that along the way uh, throughout my career. You know, think about that time, by the way. What was Katrina, 19... Two, 2005. 2005, I'm sorry, 2005. And your family lives through that. I mean, you know... They were in the house. You know, where we... Do you remember where... I, I'm sure you were... I know exactly where I was. I, I will tell you, and I want to hear where you were. I was in... I was on vacation with my family in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. And I remember watching the Weather Channel. All of a sudden, it became news. You were tuned in 24-7. And I had friends that I had gone to school with because I had went to Tulane. Yeah. And I'm texting them to find out how everybody's doing. And you're thinking, we've seen hurricanes before. Nobody really knew what it was going to be. Uh, where were you? And, and what was the experience like? So I was in, in Green Bay. We were, uh, we were playing that, that week. It hit on a Monday. It made landfall. It was August, right? It was August. It made landfall on a Monday. Right. So Thursday, three days later, we were going to play Tennessee in Tennessee on Thursday night. Uh, I think it was the last preseason game we were scheduled to play on Thursday night. And um, my mom, my two brothers, my dad had, had passed away. My mom, my two brothers, my sister, my grandmother, my mom's mom. Other family members all got in our house that we grew up in because that house had withstood Camille. I mean, we had a lot of hurricanes that come through. Yeah. Some I can't even remember the names um, that were, you know, when you had a lot of rain, had some trees down, but after a couple of weeks, power out for, you know, three or four days, but after that, you were fine. Camille was was kind of the measuring stick for for all hurricanes. Well, I'm looking at the Weather Channel myself. I'm watching Sunday, 
and it's like 125, 30 mile per hour winds. That's a, that's a lot. Yeah. But you know, when you're kind of used to that, you go, oh, well, this is, this is not that bad. And so from a, from a magnitude standpoint, it wasn't Camille. The difference is, and they were making this, they were pointing this out that this could be worse than Camille. And I'm thinking, how could it be worse than Camille? And this is Sunday. And they're saying that it's, it's not as, the velocity is not as bad, but it's much, it's, I can't remember how much bigger, but say five times bigger. You know, it stretched from, from one end of Louisiana to the panhandle of Florida, where Camille was really tight, you know, like 50 miles to 100 miles. Um, and they said it's moving extremely slow. So, you know, extreme flooding, and depending on, as you know, depending on where that eye goes in, if you're watching, if you're looking at the map and, and my hometown is right on the front right of that eye, that, that's the worst part to be in. And, the, you know, the left side, which was New Orleans, was actually the good side. They're, they're going to get half of the – I mean, they're going to get a lot of wind, but it's going to be half the speed because it's wraparound wind. And uh, I'm thinking, no, oh, this ain't good. But we grew up right out – if you walk out our front door and you walk about 30 yards, you go down some steps and, and go down probably 10, 15 feet, and there's a river. That river, if you put a boat in and you had a, had a motor and you ran it five, 10 miles per hour, in 30 minutes, you could be in the Gulf of Mexico. If that tells you, gives you it. So we were, we were really, uh, the, the, the bay that you would come into that leads into the Gulf of Mexico is called Bay of St. Louis. That's where the, the worst storm surge hit. And so when I saw that Monday, early Monday morning, they said, made landfall, Bay St. Louis, and I'm thinking, that ain't good. I tried to call my mom. I don't even know if everybody had a cell phone at the time, to be honest with you. Yeah, you got to be freaking out. I couldn't get anybody. Now, Deanna and the two girls um, and her family were here in the house that I'm in right now in Hattiesburg, which is as a crow flies, is straight north of the house I grew up in, 70 miles. Um, so a fair amount inland, but so you're not thinking much as, as far as damage there. I can't get anybody at my mom's. I have no, and I'm trying to call so-and-so who knows them, and they're, they're telling me it's bad. We can't get out. And uh, it's funny how I got, I got contacted by a Houston TV station like Monday evening. My mom had given them my number and said to tell Brett that we're okay. But wow. the house is completely destroyed. We were lucky to get out alive because what happened was that storm surge pushed into the Bay of St. Louis and it channeled into that river. And they had a 45 foot tidal surge that not the Bay of St. Louis wasn't as high, but as it pushed in and got narrower and, and, and narrower, it came up, up, up the steps and they had eight feet of water in the house and they were in the attic. I didn't even know we had an attic. This was, it was a, it was a ranch house. My grandmother couldn't swim, never learned how to swim. 
the half a mile road that I'm telling you that I grew up on, my two brothers had to swim all the way to the end of the road to find help. Jeez. And, and I, I still cannot picture that because I, uh, I'll go down that road today, uh, this evening. And, and I'll think about it as I always do when I go down that road. I'm like, I can't believe water came this far. And, uh, and deep enough to swim, by the way. Deep enough to swim. They had white caps hitting the side of the, side of the house and blew the doors. And they said within three hours, all of a sudden the water just got sucked back out, you know, as the, as the, the, the winds shifted. It sucked the water out, and there was turtles, snakes, fish, all dead in the, in the house. So trees were everywhere. Now you fast forward to our house up here. We had 125-mile-per-hour winds for three hours straight and just hammered the trees. Now the house was intact, but the tree damage was astronomical. And, and it was really like apocalypse because there were people shooting each other over gas and diesel. People were having to take baths in their pool because they had no water. Uh, we had a generator, thankfully. That's one of the things that I, I thought I wasted my money on when we built this house. A generator that would run the house for a week it runs off a 300-gallon diesel tank. And I'm like, when are we ever going to use that? Well... They used it. It ran the power for a week and a half before they could get it regular power back up. You imagine not having you not you imagine not having power, you know, and people did 10, 12, some for no air conditioning, 100 degrees, humid as hell. Uh, but yeah, it was and so I, I was in, I was gonna try to come home after the Tennessee game on Thursday night. But if you remember, they were not letting anyone come in to ground zero. Right. And New Orleans was, was part of that. Of course, New Orleans got most of the, the publicity. But my hometown in Hattiesburg, you could not – only thing that could come in, they had all the interstates, I-10, 59, 20, all were blocked off except for incoming supplies, National Guard, things like that. Um, so I couldn't get in. So I couldn't see it. Did, did your family have enough food? How'd they manage to, you know, until they could get supplies? I think they stocked up a good bit, but uh, within a week, I think they were able, in Hattiesburg, the big issue was gas and diesel. Uh, people were trying to find uh, generators that they could, you know, people were donating generators and stuff. like that. They had to have fuel to run it. And you were having to drive like three hours, like to Vicksburg or to Jackson to get diesel or gas. And they were letting you get a jug. So it, it was, I, I, I do think from a food standpoint, they stocked up considerably. Yeah. All right. Let's get back to football for a second, because, you know, we could talk for five hours before we're done. And I know you don't have that kind of time and, and I got to get on the bike, but, um, and I do want to talk to you about life after football, but, you know, you start setting all the records. You have the great career. We know it's going to end in Canton, Ohio, but you had that one moment in, in New Orleans, as we talk about New Orleans, interestingly enough, where you finally did something that every player has to accomplish once, and that's win that Super Bowl. And I know there's got to be disappointment not winning the next year against the Denver Broncos, but tell me about that moment. Just not, not the game itself, not the great play call that you and I have talked about yeah. you know, that resulted in a touchdown, 
but just that satisfaction that comes the moment that last second ticks off the clock. Uh, it was it was sort of a an affirmation of uh, that I really was legit and, and that we as a team were legit. Um, because I remember and Dion and I, Sanders, we talked about this all the time. When I played with him my first year in Atlanta, Dion and some of the older guys would always joke with other players that were kind of on the bubble and said, if you don't tighten up, they're going to send you to Green Bay. <laughs> and I remember that. And I, was, I and I, I remember that because at the end of that year, I was traded to Green Bay. Yeah. yeah. Now I looked at it as a huge stepping stone and or step up or an opportunity. But most people looked at going to Green Bay as, you know, an outcast. I mean, you, so it, even though the trophy was named after the, the, the coach, you know, who, you know, was unbelievable like Bart Starr was and Paul Horning and Willie Wood, Willie Davis and Ray Nischke's and all that. But that was, that was then, this is now. So it was kind of, uh, it gave a street cred uh, for sure. And, and that we're here to be, and we belong. Would you have had the same kind of street credit if Reggie White didn't come there? I don't think so. I don't know if we would have won it. I really don't. Well, he, uh, but not, I say not, this all not, the time. Not Brett, and I don't mean to interrupt. You know this as well as I do. Green Bay at the time was thought as a somewhat provincial town. It wasn't necessarily, you know, so open to African-Americans. And African-Americans weren't going to sign there. And he went there, and it kind of changed how everybody looked at that city. I say this all the time, Bruce. Reggie White made it cool, no pun intended. He made it cool to come to Green Bay. If Reggie can go, anyone can go. Right. And open the door for hundreds who have come from all, all over the place to play in Green Bay and, and want to. Uh, but before him, you know, it probably been 20, 25 years since uh, anyone wanted to play in Green Bay, period. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think Reggie, you know, everyone wants to give Ron Wolf credit for trading for me and sticking his neck out there. You know, I, I definitely give him credit. I, I think he saw something that even I didn't see uh, in me. But there's no question the acquisition of Reggie White was the difference in us making the Super Bowl or, or really winning the Super Bowl and becoming who we are now. I mean, Green Bay's thought of as a, as a contender every year. No question. Um so, you know, a lot's been made, obviously, of, you know, what you went through as you, you got older in your career. We've had Aaron Rodgers on the show a number of times and how things started with him, ended with him. It's, it's great to see you guys now being very, very close and, and kind of bonding, becoming part of that Packers family together. And then, and then you know, the, the end of your career, if you could rewrite that, you know, we've talked about the indecision that came almost on a regular basis in those last years and maybe how you were reflected upon publicly with – I, I think it's interesting. Everybody would talk about why Brett's coming back. They, everybody thought they knew what was in your head. And I would sit back and go, maybe he just likes playing football, but isn't really 100% sure yet. I mean, how frustrating was it for you to hear the rhetoric out there? And if you could do anything over, would you do it? Uh, it, it was frustrating, but I, I deserved a lot of it because uh, it seemed to be uh, 
you know, what's he going to do this time? You know, it wasn't like I had a clear cut vision and focus of what I was going to do because I didn't. Um, and I, I think, you know, on our radio show, I, I, I've described this at, at times, uh, it, what I feel like anyone can relate to in that school. So like you, you're in February or March, you, you know, school years drug on and on and on. And you are so ready to get out of school. And you can't wait for the off season or the summer. And that comes and you have your fun. You, you, you know, you're the furthest thing from homework and, and assignments and stuff as you can get. But then, you know, it's getting a couple of weeks out from starting school back and you kind of get excited about it. And you kind of look forward to it. And then that cycle repeats itself. It repeats itself. My latter part of my career, that's the way it was. Uh, the, the season, you know, it wasn't any longer than it was in my first or second year. Um, but it physically took a toll and mentally it took a toll. And so when the season was over, I wanted to get as far away from it as possible. And, and two months into offseason, you say, hey, do you want to play? I would have said, hell no. Now, come June, it's a different story. Uh, as far as doing something different, I think I, I would like to, to think that we, that we would have done something different now knowing what we know. Both sides, Ted Thompson, myself, Mike McCarthy, we could have done something maybe like the Patriots and Tom Brady did. Uh, we don't know exactly what went on in their meetings, but it was a clean, clean break, if you will. Right. No uh, animosity maybe, on either side. No animosity. And if there is, they kept it between themselves. Right. Um, and, and so like it or not, it was, it was a clean break. And uh, if they wanted to move forward without me, fine. You know, tell me that if, if I wanted to play, but didn't, didn't want to give them an answer when they wanted an answer, we come to a resolution, whatever that would have been, and something different than what what actually happened. But but did it all did it all piss you off that you know social media wasn't what it what it is today? I know that, but there was talk radio, there was television, there was ESPN, etc. And everybody wanted to go on there and say, "Oh, he loves the attention. He's only doing this because he's got an ego and he needs everybody to throw." And I was like, I. I'm not saying this to pat myself on the back. I would say it may be that he is not sure. Why can't we accept things for what they are? Did it bother you that everybody assumed that this was Brett Favre, the attention grabber? Yeah. Yes and no. Yes, it did bother me. Uh, more so because it bothered my family. Yeah. And, and, had to. and that bothered me because I, I didn't particularly like it, but I could handle it because I knew the truth. And my family knew the truth. It, no one wants negative attention. And that was most of the attention I was getting. You, you know, Willie or Wony, well, what the hell is this problem? Uh, you know, who would want that? I, I just wanted to make because I knew once, once I, I stepped away from the game for good, almost never do you come back. Now, Grinkowski's done it. Uh, but, you know, prior to, to my – situation it was unheard of for you to step away for a year and come back or even retire and come back uh even if it was just an off season um 
I wanted to, I, I knew that in May, when I felt like the last thing I want to do is play, say in year 17 in the off season, the last thing I want to do is play. That come end of June, that may, I may be, you know, looking at things differently. So I was trying to, you know, my, my situation with Green Bay, how that ended, I gave an answer at a time when I was not willing to be 100% committed to the team. A month and a half later, I, I should have known better. I, I was committed. I was ready. Uh, so, but you know, I mean, it, it, bad news sells a lot more than good news. We know that, unfortunately. Um, it sucks, but it's the truth. So rather than tell the, you know, like what you're saying, you know, maybe, maybe just isn't sure. That, you know, we're not going to get many headlines, uh, but, you know, he's a prima donna and he's, he loves the attention. That sells. Yeah. Yeah, it's much easier. All right. So in our last couple of minutes, let me just ask you, football comes to an end and, and you went home. You know, what's Brett Favre going to do? Is he going to be on Monday Night Football? Is he going to do this? Is he going to do that? And, you know, you do a commercial here and there. I go into the local um, Bed Bath & Beyond and see you on nose trimmers, which I'm very appreciative of. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, what did you want to do after football? Was this it? I mean, you know, you're riding the tractor. You're, 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 and, I, and you and I have talked about that. As you get a little older, that becomes a greater challenge because it really is work that's involved. Yeah, it becomes work. What did you want to do and what do you want to do? Um, I, you know, when I left the game, I really didn't want to do anything. Uh, I didn't have business. Uh, plenty of money in the bank. Plenty of money in the bank. Um, I think more than anything, because I wasn't, a, we, I say, I, it, it, was, it was my fault. We never traveled and did vacations during football. Uh, you know, six months of off season or five months, whatever it is. We never, you know, I never said, let's go to Bahamas or the mountains or uh, we just didn't do it. I, I wanted to be here on my property and enjoy it. And so certainly I was selfish. When I was done, like a light switch clicked on. I was like, let's go do something. And from, the, from that point on, the first offseason, we went to Yellowstone. Just, I, I kind of put my finger on the map and said, let's do something. Let's go, let's do something different. Let's go to the mountains. Let's go to Yellowstone. Now you're like, oh, let's go. We loved it. And then we went to Glacier. And then we went to Steamboat. And then we went to uh, um, Whistler, and, you know, in Canada. And we, every year we do something. And so, and I love it. Uh, I, I love to be able to take our family and, and friends and, and experience these places. Uh, and, and so I'm always looking for the next place to go to. Now, I did coach for two years, high school football, really as a favor to the head coach that was at the high school here while, you know, when Ed Werger was sitting outside, Willie or Wony, he was camped out at Oak Grove High School, and I would be throwing and working out with those kids. And the head coach, great guy, would always ask me, when you retire, Brett, will you be my offensive coordinator? I, and I would say, yeah, sure. Thinking, hell no. 
Yeah. Well, when I retired, he cornered me and he said, now you, you promised me. I don't know if I ever promised him, but I, but I said, I don't know. His name's Neville, Neville Barr. Great guy. And I, he kind of twisted my arm. He says, look, I don't have enough money to pay. I said, look, I don't want money. I don't even know if I have enough juice in the tank to, to be excited about this, but I'll do it. And I had an absolute blast. Yeah. I, I, I didn't think I would. Now we won the state championship the second year, had a great group of kids, um, had a lot of fun. And I, I quit after the second year because my daughter was playing volleyball from that point on. And it's a fall schedule. So I would have had to miss and I didn't want to miss any games. So I, do I miss it? I had a lot of fun doing it. I don't know if I'd want to coach at high school level, any, maybe college. So that's work though. That's real work. It, well, I'm not, you know, if you said, well, what's holding you back, what's holding me back is, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things. Okay. What's more important, the, the free time or the coaching? The, if I were the head coach at Southern Miss or anywhere else, I would say, we're leaving at five o'clock today. I'm going biking. And I, I, I encourage all of you to go biking with me. If you want to stay and watch film all night, fine. Now, I may not win many games or I may, I may start a trend. Uh, I, but if, if I was an assistant somewhere, I would go absolutely bananas with the head coach saying we need to be here till three in the morning breaking out film because I know you can get it done in a much more manageable time frame. And so right now I, I you know, I mean, I'd much rather go on a vacation somewhere. Yeah. I was about to say we're cutting to cycling and I'll, and I'll wrap it up with that by saying uh, I'm now looking at your ride. You went out with your wife earlier today. Uh, you did uh, about 18 and a half miles just under 18 miles an hour. Now it's, it's relatively flat there for those that are cyclists. They'll appreciate that. Is your wife keeping up with you? Yeah, she is. Now she, she I got, I got over 2000 miles this year. She's got probably a third, maybe less than that. So it used to be the other way around. Now she, when she's, when she's in shape, bike shape, I, I can't stay with her. You can't be serious. I, no, she's, she's strong. Now, is she on Strava? No, she refuses to go on it. <laughs> I mean, that's the social networking for cycling. I know. She's like, all you care about is Strava. That's all we care about, exactly. I mean, I'm always checking, you know, who's Checking, riding. see who beat one of your segments or, you know, I mean. Exactly. And, and um, when you go out with the guys, are they, are they now your, your cycling buddies or are there guys that show up because they want to beat Brett Favre? No, they, they're cycling buddies. They, you know, they, the honeymoon's over. It you is. Know, they, they could care less. Yeah, the excitement's worn off. Yeah. 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 I, I'm going to let Brett beat me, you know. I could say, no, there's none of that. Well, just, just so you know, if, if we ever get in a ride together, that is my goal, to beat Brett Favre. But you're not, it's not going to happen. Well, I, I, think, I think in fairness, it depends. If we're going on flats, you got me beat. I got to get you on a hill. Well, you know what? You would like this. Tuesday, you know, we, we usually do a group ride 5.30 on Tuesdays. I think I've told you that. And sometimes 10 people show up. Sometimes it's just two and we end up doing just a mediocre ride. But, so this Tuesday, the guy 
who owns a bike shop here in town and kind of orchestrates all the, the rides and stuff, sent out a group message and said, hey, different. Uh, we got a different group ride. I'm, I, I got a different format. It'll, it'll kind of spice it up a little bit. So we're going to stagger the times based on weight or level. So um, I think eight guys showed up. Usually I, th I thought more would show up, but, but there was a big chance of rain. So me, uh, I, I'm 225. There was, there was me and another guy who are, are at that weight. I think he's a little heavier. And then there was a, a guy who's 75, Louis, Louis Courtney. He's a, he's a badass on bikes. Us three, we went off first. We, and we had a three-minute start. And it was a five-mile loop that was really hilly for a year. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you'll have to go back and look at it. it, uh, it, it it's uh, the segment is Tuesday, TNW2. Okay, I'll take a look. And uh, the, the, fast, the fastest guys were the last three to go off. And I was three minutes ahead of them. And this is my first time to ever do something like that. And, you know, like we started off this, this podcast, you're talking about there's some strategy. The two guys that I was with, I, was, I left them like a half a mile in. Uh, and I knew I would. Louis's really strong, but that's not his forte. A 45-mile bike ride, you know, where he's, he just could sit in. Right. He, he, he's, he's great. So I left those guys. So I'm by myself. I'm the first one round. I, I do the first loop. I, I'm almost finished with the second loop. I got about a mile, mile and a half, maybe, maybe at the most. And I, I'm up uh, the biggest hill in the loop. And the guy who I told you orchestrated, owns a bike shop. He's, he's a stud on a bike. He's about 155 pounds, but he's 60 years old. But he's, he's smart, too. He told me, when we right before we started, he goes, "No, whatever you do, don't ever look back. Don't ever look back." And I'm going up the hill, and I I look back, and I see them. There's three of them, and they're they're rolling, and they're probably 500 yards back. And I was digging, man, and I'm I'm looking down. I'm doing 16, and my heart rate is like just redlining. And one of the guys in the group. He's probably the fastest of the three. Mike Poole, good guy. He comes by and slaps me on the ass. He's like, come on, get in with us. I was so gassed. When they blew past me, they were doing 22. I'm doing 16. How do you sit in on that? Yeah, that's the last time you saw them. Oh, they were gone. They, they were gone. gone. And then I just threw in a towel. Well, stick, stick with the wife. It's, it sounds more competitive. Yeah. Uh, listen, I'm so glad you could join me to talk about things more than just football as we did for this uh, last hour and change. It's really great catching up with you. Thanks for joining yep. me on the podcast. You, you bet, Bruce. Let's do it again. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with the Hall of Famer, Brett Favre. And again, you can find every podcast on the SiriusXM app, Stitcher, Pandora, and Apple Podcasts. I hope you'll join me every Thursday as we introduce a new episode of Going Long.